Hey, if you're invested in the Las Vegas mayoral race, and really, we should all be, you're going to want to check out the Nevada Independent Mayoral Forum on Wednesday, May 15th at the Fountain Blue. The Indy CEO, John Ralston, will be moderating a live panel with the three frontrunners. You know, it could get spicy, so don't miss it. Tickets are available at thenevadaindependent.com slash events. And as a bonus for CityCast Las Vegas members, we've got two pairs of tickets we're giving away tonight. So make sure to join at membership.citycast.fm if you haven't already. Over the last few weeks, a high-profile player for the Raiders seemed to be going through a very public meltdown. He said he was held in a hospital and injected with drugs against his will. And now that he's been released from the team, we likely won't learn more about that experience. But it raises an important question. What does it take to commit someone to a mental hospital in Las Vegas? Today on CityCast Las Vegas, we talk with psychotherapist Dr. Jim Jobin. He explains what happens to a person during this extraordinary suspension of their liberty. What are the signs that someone needs to be committed? And do people have the right to be mentally ill? It's Wednesday, October 11th. I'm David Figler, and here's what Las Vegas is talking about. Dr. Jim Jobin, welcome back to CityCast Las Vegas. Man, it's always a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me back. Well, we love your expertise. We love your take. And something occurred in the news recently, and it it sort of hit me. Las Vegas Raiders player Chandler Jones recently tweeted about being involuntarily committed and even getting injections against his will. Uh, A lot has happened since those tweets. He's also been released from the Raiders now. I I know you can't speak to the specifics of that case, but tell us about the process of involuntary psychological commitments here in Las Vegas. Yeah. And, and, you know, as sad as the situation is with Chandler Jones, uh, it started a good conversation. So we do have a process for that in Nevada. Um, Here, we call it a legal 2000 and other states have different names for it. But basically, the short of it is that it requires either a police officer, doctor or mental health professional, and they have to evaluate you and realize that, you know what, you're a danger to yourself or others, or we don't think you're capable of caring for yourself right now. And, and it really is more of an acute decision. And that usually doesn't apply if we see like chronic mental illness, because we know that's going to mm. be a recurring problem. But mm-hmm. if it seems acute and, and kind of really powerful right now, we can put you on hold for about 72 hours. And that means we'll take you to a hospital. The ambulance will take you. Whether you like it or not, you're going. <laughs> they're taking your shoelaces. They're giving you jello. And we're going to put you on ice for 72 hours and help you calm down and just make sure you're safe. Yeah, I am curious, though, specifically what a person goes through while they're in the hospital beyond the shoelaces and the jello. Well, we, the shoelace thing's real. Yeah, no, I get <laughs> Definitely it. I get take it. those. <laughs> you do get a blanket. <laughs> That's nice. Uh, but yeah, so you go to the hospital and usually you're going to start in an ER emergency room and they're going to do a basic evaluation. And at that point, 
if you are rowdy um, or if you don't seem like you're capable of listening right now and staying still, it is possible that they may be giving you some medicine. And yes, that can happen against your will. And then once things seem stable, uh, a psychiatrist will do a little bit of an evaluation and then they'll decide where they're going to keep you for up to three days. Sometimes they'll transfer you to a mental health hospital. Um, and we have several of those in the Valley that are just for mental health. And you'll go to an inpatient floor that's very secured, very safe. You'll have a room. Sometimes you'll have a roommate, just like a hospital. It's just a much tidier hospital. There's nothing loose or laying around. Everything is very clean and put away and making sure that nobody can really find anything to hurt themselves with. It's not uh, this 1950s insane asylum with the straps and, and the straight jackets and the padded rooms. It's really not that. It, it's, yeah. it's a room with no corners in it. <laughs> Everything has been sanded down to a rounded edge uh, mm. with softer kind of upholstery to make sure nobody can hurt themselves. It's it's a very safe room. Um, and, and that's what it looks like. And that's what the experience is like. And it's very rare uh, that they really have to restrain somebody. Uh, the the, the pr preference is really to agree to medication. And then they want the room unlocked. They want you to be able to wander around, go to the group room, talk to the, the nurses, and then go back to your room whenever you need some privacy. But yeah, there are also closed door times too. Yeah. And Doc, you mentioned that, you know, a police officer or a mental health professional has the ability to initiate that commitment. But I imagine it starts with someone calling it in. It could be a friend, a loved one, a coworker, someone who observes it. For the layperson, what are the signs that someone they care about needs to be committed? What are they looking for and who specifically should they call? Well, I mean, the first indicator light that you always want to be aware of are if somebody's talking about suicide. So if somebody's saying, hey, look, I'm going to end my life, um, they have the means to do it, they have a gun, they have a knife, they're, they are accessing poison, or they're telling you they're going to do it, call for help. Call for help right now. That and, is the is most that a 911 call? Or? That's a 911. Yep. Okay. Now, if you are out there and you're hearing my voice and you're struggling with this, you should know that 988 is now a national option. You can text or call the suicide hotline, which is 988-9888. And you know what? You can talk to somebody about what you're going through and they will not come get you. It's nothing like that. They're just there to talk. But yeah, if, if you're out there and you have a loved one who's going through something, you do call 911. So one red flag that you might see is suicidality, talk of suicide. It's always okay to call 911 and ask more questions. They're always going to be able to coach you. Um, homicidal intent, if somebody seems really violent, they're talking about going out and hurting somebody. If somebody just seems out of sync with reality, and you talk to them and they're just, they're, they're, they're clearly not taking care of themselves. They're not eating. They're not bathing. Um, they're saying strange and bizarre things, talking about fears, about realities that don't exist, if they're hallucinating or, or hearing voices that aren't there. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to commit them because a lot of people live with chronic schizophrenia or psychosis. But if they can't seem to care for themselves, that's whenever you want to make a call. You mentioned the word acute, and I'd imagine for people who know the person and how they are on a regular basis to see that sort of uh, out-of-character behavior, that would be that kind of red flag you're talking about versus someone you're just seeing on the street, what you might not know. Right. And you mentioned earlier that substance abuse is is sometimes part of this. And a lot of people think, oh, if, if I just think you're high, then I can't call because you're just high. Mm -hmm. Actually, that's, that's not entirely true because a lot of people who do suffer with acute mental illness will often self-medicate uh, with substance abuse, that's that's not uncommon. And they'll still decide, hey, you need to come in here 
And, uh, you know, even if you're on meth, we can still determine you're not safe. You're not safe to yourself and others. And they don't give you a special pass because we think you're high. You're still behaviorally qualified to come on in here and and take a, a snooze for 72 hours uh, to bring you in. But, you know, I make light of it, David, because I want folks to understand it's not the end of the world. Uh, you're accessing health care. It's OK. Lots of people have done it. Why 72 hours, Dr. Jim? We just kind of look at that as as enough time that it feels like it's a negotiation between your constitutional right to due process and a public need to protect you and others. And so three days seems to be the agreement in Nevada. In other states, it isn't three days. Some states, usually it is. Usually it's 72 hours. In Nevada, the rules are that in that 72 hours, you're going to be re-evaluated by another expert on site, and they're going to monitor you. And look, it doesn't have to end at three days, because what happens is if another evaluator says, hey, I don't think this person's safe to return to real life here, we need to keep caring for them. They can contact the court and the court system then has their own evaluators, their court doctors who are then going to reevaluate. But at this point, there's going to be proper legal presentation in this. There's going to be proper legal accountability. And now we're protecting that person's rights while also trying to advocate for what their care should be. And now we're getting it in front of the legal system where there's a lot more appropriate transparency. But 72 hours is something we can do without having to involve the legal system. Hey, it's David Figler, and one of my favorite food festivals is coming back to town. It's Vegas Unstripped over at the Palms Hotel on Saturday, May 18th. Over two dozen chefs from some of Las Vegas' most talked-about restaurants creating original, unique menu items they've never made before. Chef creativity at its best. We're talking chefs from Partage, Esther's Kitchen, Milpa, EDO, and more, including this year's James Beard Award finalist Steve Kessler from Aroma. Tickets are $150 and are all-inclusive of food and drink, so you don't have to pay for anything once you're inside. No hidden up charges. I went last year, and it was so crowded in the best possible way. We got one remarkable dish after another, and while it was a little indulgent, here's the best part. The net proceeds go to local charities. So head on over to VegasUnstripped.com to get your tickets now. We'll see you there. So what kind of rights are they giving up during that 72-hour period? You, you certainly lose autonomy, but you do get phone calls. You, we want you to call people. Okay. So when you come to the hospital, if you say, hey, I want to call my family. Yes, let's get you. You're, you're not in trouble. We want your family. In fact, we want to call them with you. Uh, friends, family, your job, your doctor, if you see a therapist, anybody that you're willing to talk to, uh, the hospital staff absolutely wants to get them involved if you're willing to so that we can make sure that we're getting all the information we can about you, getting you as much support as we can get you to. So when I say we suspend your rights, I guess I'm just meaning the fact that against your will, uh, you will be changing where you're sleeping tonight and changing what you're doing today. And in America, that's a very sacred freedom that you have. And we take it very seriously. And mental health professionals are one of the only people that have this extrajudicial power 
um, to suspend your rights temporarily for your care. And it's yeah. something that we, we really have to be very careful with and take very seriously. Yeah, big L liberty at stake. Absolutely. Um, what would be those red flags for you that you do need to petition the court or suggest to the court that an extended say beyond that 72 hours would be appropriate? I mean, certainly your colleagues have done that. Yeah. And, and to be clear, um, those are designated people that do those evaluations. So they wouldn't come back to me, oh, okay. um, the person who originally sent the patient, um, because they want those evaluators to be attached to the court system. And so those uh, those physicians, those evaluators are designated to do that by the court. But yeah, what red flags they're looking for, they want to see improvement. They want to see some kind of evidence that this person's competence has been restored, that they seem to be able somewhat to speak for themselves, to follow up with basic medical orders, that we're seeing them do some basic self-care. And if their mental health symptoms are so severe or those uh, they, they continue to report to us that they are a danger to themselves and others. Um, and again, we're not trying to punish that, but we do have to respond to that for them too. You know, we want to help them be safe. Then yeah, that's the red flags that the evaluators are going to say, okay, we're not done here yet. Um, let's make sure that we, we do this safely. Got it. And then the judge ultimately makes that call. And Dr. Jim, you know, I'm a lawyer and on occasion, uh, I've had clients who have come to me and I will tell you this about all the clients who have come to me to help them uh, defeat an extension. Uh, they've all been a little what I would call eclectic and they have all universally claimed that they were being victimized by the person who made that first call, whether it was a friend or a loved one. And, and I'm wondering, is that always going to be in the mind of the doctors, a paranoid delusion? Or is it possible that our system is sometimes abused by people? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, yes, to, to the first point, the system has been used. It has been weaponized by people. And it's, it's a tricky thing because when you think about it on the macroscopic level and you think, oh, no, I don't want the system to be used to, you know, put somebody in there against their will that didn't need to be there. You're right. None of us want that. But far less than that, we want a system that accidentally leaves people on the street that are going to kill somebody. Right. Mm. And so we're willing to roll the dice and risk it on the other side. But as a general rule, it, it's not supposed to be very hard to get out of your 72 hour hold. Um, I've had patients that I've sent in and they've been released the same day. And, and that's part of the division of power. My hold is only enough authority to make them report to the hospital. Then another professional, independently of me, is going to make another evaluation. And they'll be evaluated every 12 hours after that to see if it's time to let them go. And those people owe me no allegiance. And I've had sure. doctors at the hospital call me and say, you know, Jim, I think this person's ready to go. Uh, I just wanted to make sure that you and I are on the same page. Did you see something here that I don't see? And I'll tell them, okay, here's what I saw a day ago. But if you're seeing something different, doc, you're the boss. It's your call. And so there's a lot of checks and balances in the system. But yeah, like all powers, it absolutely has been and can be abused. Now, I, I know we're not going to comment because we can't on the impact of an involuntary commitment to people in the news. But I'm wondering if you have any stories personally when an involuntary commitment was a real success story. Like, can you tell us a time that you believe it really saved someone's life or turned their life around to be involuntarily committed? It's never fun. It's not, you know, it's not the Bellagio. <laughs> um, and so you definitely, the Jello's nice, but it's not steak and eggs. And so, you know, most people will say, 
that going to the psych hospital was not fun. And they'll say that to me. They'll say it sure yeah. isn't a great place. It's not where I <laughs> yeah, want to spend. Yeah, it's not fun. No, I don't. I think that's probably <laughs> universal. Yeah, not booking it for my next staycation. However, I would say the majority of the time where I've had people on a on a involuntary or voluntary hold, because keep in mind, 90 percent of the time um, I could put somebody on an involuntary hold, but we talk together and we make a good health care choice for the patient, which is what I want for them. I want them to make their own health care choices under good counsel. And I'll tell you that the vast majority of the time it was the right decision. They never love it, but they come out and they say, well, that was unpleasant. But I didn't hurt myself. I couldn't. I didn't hurt anybody else. I couldn't. I feel more stabilized. I saw a psychiatrist. I now have prescriptions for medicines that I might have had to wait a month, two months to get an appointment with the doctor to get these meds. And I skipped the line. And now I've got everything I need right away. Here, I can, I can give you a broad example. I had a young man a couple of years ago um, was experiencing paranoid delusions. And so he was um, having this idea. He wasn't hearing voices. He wasn't seeing things that aren't there. Those are called hallucinations. He was experiencing delusions. And delusions are whenever we falsely interpret the world around us. Mm. So he started believing, I think somebody's out to get me. And he was at work and he was thinking, I think that these people are out to get me. I think these coworkers are out to get me. When he was driving his car, he'd see oncoming traffic and he'd think any one of them was going to swerve into him or the cars behind him were following him. And it was getting really, really bad to the point where his self-care was now greatly suffering. And so there was an example where we talked about it. I told him, hey, it looks like we've hit a curve here where we don't have great self-care. You're feeling really unsafe. You're getting really close to doing something spontaneous and dangerous. Can we go talk to the hospital? And he agreed reluctantly, but he was a grown up about it. He went to there to the hospital, told them what I told him to report to them. They did a great job. They evaluated him, kept him for about a week in that case. But that was with his consent because they wanted to see how the medicines were working. And boy, did that help because he got the right medicines. And 10 days later, those delusions were almost gone. And he was like a whole new man. And he'd been suffering with this for like a year by the time I, I finally got into his life. So this can really work for a lot of people. And it isn't always bad. Well, thank goodness. And I got to imagine there are a lot of people who suffer from acute mental distress in our community, whether it's on the street corner or hidden behind a mansion wall. Why aren't more people being committed uh, with success stories like that? They hide it well. And, and, and also, also this... not to suggest that we should commit more people. I'm just <laughs> sure. wondering why more people are not being committed. There, there's a there's a, a shortage of care. And, and so, you know, commitment, you have to understand, I'm definitely uh, singing this song in a positive note. You know, I want people not to be afraid of the system. But this is the highest level of care. Um, when you think about the continuum of care, the lowest level is level one coming over and just talking to a therapist in their office, uh, sitting there with a Starbucks in one hand, you know, your feet crossed at the couch and just chatting away. That's the nice low level of care. This is the highest level of care. And so it's not the access point uh, most of the time. That's not really the front door to the mental health care system. And so we really don't want people um, to constantly flood into the hospital system or to be committed or, or 
were put away like this, um, because that shows us that we didn't catch things earlier. We didn't do a good job intervening at lower levels of care where we could have made a real difference and not interrupted that person's life. And so that's usually the goal. But you're absolutely right. There's an awful lot of folks out there that, yes, still wander the street. And, you know, on that point, David, it's a, it's an interesting thing because I think a lot of locals will see the the guy under the bridge yelling and they'll say, why is that guy out here? Jim, go get him, you know, send him to the hospital. Well, David, we have. He's been there. He's, he's been there lots of times. But he also has a human right to choose his health. And that includes his mental health. And some have decided for themselves, they choose not to take the medicine, they choose not to stay in care, they choose not to access the resources, and they do have a human right to live under the bridge and yell at the wall. And it's tragic and sad, but there is also an obligation by the system to respect that person's autonomy to choose for themselves how they will live. Whoa. So you're advocating that people should have the right to choose to be mentally ill? They do have the right. It, it, and so really, it's, it's, a, it's a self-evident reality that, that humans have that right. Now, when you become destructive to yourself or others in your behaviors or clearly incapable of you know, caring for yourself on a basic human level, we as, a, as your neighbors have a, a community responsibility to provide a baseline level of care. And again, we have checks and balances to ensure that you're being respected and your rights are being honored. But at some point, if you show us that you're not dangerous and you can eat and drink and you can take a shower occasionally and you can keep yourself out of traffic, all right, you've met the minimum requirements. If you choose to live with mental illness and not follow medical advice after that point, it is an abuse of our power and authority as your neighbors in your community to impose that lifestyle on you. You have a right to live. And I guess it leads me to my last question here in Las Vegas. How would you rate the emergency mental health and even the legal 2000 services provided in Las Vegas. We're getting a lot better, actually. You know, there's a lot about Nevada mental health care that I want to see improve. This is an area I've seen uh, leaders really just treat with a lot of respect. There's actually been a lot of reform in the last decade regarding our legal 2000 process to make it very humane and very transparent. And I think that that's been a very important growth. And another area we've seen a lot of growth is bringing uh, therapists or paratherapists along with police officers and, and having teams of uh, assessors that are part of the, the criminal justice system. And that's really good, too, because we don't always want police to be the ones to respond to a mm. mental health incident. Um, people that are mentally, yeah, yeah it, it's a shame because people that are mentally ill are much higher risk to be hurt uh, by police officers because there's going to be misunderstanding and police officers aren't always trained with the tools of de-escalation for mental health stuff. So Nevada has come a long way with just making sure we have more professionals that are specialized in this and doing a much better job. The area that we really need to grow is what do we do with this person after they are stabilized? And this is where there's a huge weakness in the Nevada system. Because once you're stabilized and you're not a danger to yourself or others anymore, most hospitals just say, great, here's your discharge paperwork. Uh, the bathroom's on your right and the exit door's on your left. Good luck mm. to you, sir. Mm -hmm. That's inappropriate. This person was literally put on a psychiatric hold, but we don't have resources to step and they them may have down. Just, they may have just had some really heavy 
medications in their system, too. Yeah, yeah. And they're wow. trying out a new antipsychotic for the first time. And we're saying, hey, good luck to you. And, wow. and they can't come back. They can't call the hospital again and go, oh, can I talk to Dr. Johnson? I was just there an hour ago. No, you can't. You've left this level of care. There's no coming back in. And it's really hard because the hospitals, God bless them, they don't know who to send you to because there's it's hard to find a, a next level, medium level of care between the hospital and an outpatient therapist. That's where Nevada has a lot of room to grow is creating that level two intermediate care where we've mm. got stabilization care, uh, health and human services care, housing uh, options to make sure people can stabilize and get off the street. If that now that they're finally sane and they're thinking for themselves, we don't want them going right back to the corner. That That's not the safe place or right back to the tunnels. That's where Nevada needs to grow. Dr. Jim Jobin, thank you again for joining us on CityCast Las Vegas. Thanks for having me, guys. Take care. If you or someone you know are in an acute crisis or feeling suicidal, call 988 for free hotline assistance or 911 if it's an emergency. That's all for today here on CityCast Las Vegas. If you enjoyed the show, go tell a friend and let us know your thoughts in a review. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Till then, stay lucky. And then you start going to group and uh, you get some jello. The jello's for real though. And it's really good, Dave. I like the jello. Okay. It's very I'm not going to diminish the jello, nor There's do I upside. need to further explore it. <laughs> Free jello.